Welcome to another episode of the Handful Podcast. Today, we're talking about World Day of Social Justice. I'm Grace, and I'm here with Valerie and Shireen to talk a little bit more about this UN-designated day, as well as some of the main issues that are associated with the World Day of Social Justice, and especially the theme for this year. Valerie, would you mind giving us a little bit of an explainer about what World Day of Social Justice is and what it commemorates? Yeah, so the World Day of Social Justice is celebrated um, every February 20th, and it's a relatively new um, international um, day that is held, uh, held by the United Nations. So. In 2009, the United Nations General Assembly um, decided to dedicate this day as the World Day of Social Justice based on the Copenhagen uh, Declaration and Program of Action. And this day is, is held to raise awareness and give special attention to issues concerning the global economy and development. This annual celebration um, is celebrated in recognition that social justice is intertwined with issues of human rights, peace, and security. That's great, Valerie. Thank you so much for explaining, you know, what the World Day of Social Justice even is, where does it come from, and why we are thinking about it today. So this year, the UN specifically thought about what kind of theme, you know, are we going to be focusing on for our World Day of Social Justice? And the theme that they chose was social justice in the digital economy, which is something I think that is becoming a more and more widely visible issue just because the visual digital economy has become so large and it continues to grow. And so thinking about the digital economy, we're also thinking about it from a scope of visibility and thinking about the importance of visibility when it comes to social justice, especially in thinking about how some issues are less visible than others. And that can be for a number of reasons, whether that be certain identities or experiences aren't really centered or especially marginalized identities and experiences often get left out or are less visible in the public eye or even think about geography. So we're going to be talking about rural communities, for example, as um, maybe being less visible when we're thinking about issues of social justice, especially as they relate to the digital economy. And so in thinking about that, um, I know Valerie, you wrote a little bit about Indonesia and some of the issues that are going on there as it relates to digital economy and certain intersections. So do you mind telling us a little bit about the secondhand phones that you wrote about and the examples in Indonesia that you provided? Yeah, so just really quick, um, about just about a year ago in July 2020, when the pandemic hit and with stay-at-home orders um, worldwide, including in Indonesia, there something that I didn't realize uh, was there that there was a great need for um, smartphones for students from underprivileged communities in Indonesia to join online classes. So it's just really surprising to see that a lot of families don't 
only have like one um, smart device um, for work, and now with online classes, uh, children have to take turns with their parents to just to take online classes, and this um, disturbs their learning ability and also their uh, parents' ability to earn income. And they're already in a tough spot, and everyone's having a hard time during this pandemic. I read in the news that there's this movement by journalists in um, Jakarta and they decided to join forces and raise funds to buy uh, smartphones and donate them to people who need them. And initially this movement was local, uh, just in the greater Jakarta area, but then um, soon it became a national program because there's a lot of demands from uh, other parts of Indonesia. And so this just really shows that there's a great need um, and disparity um, in the digital age. So Shireen, what what about in the United States? I know you wrote a, a little bit about um, internet access in rural, rural America. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, Valerie. Thank you. Um, I really, you know, enjoyed learning about what you wrote, especially like in your example of Indonesia and thinking about how these issues intersect, not only as they are between the digital economy, for example, and things like poverty or living in a specific geographic area, but also thinking about now in the digital age, like having to share phones or share computers because there's only one for one family. And as we know now with the pandemic, right, folks are having to be in this virtual space. So that was a similar issue, even thinking about here in the United States in rural America, where folks are experiencing a similar lack of access to broadband and lack of access to internet technology and those tools um, to be able to do that, which can be really, really hard, especially since the pandemic has forced more and more of us into a virtual space, whether that be for school, for work, even just to have social connection, which is also super, super important. Um, so it's left quite a few folks behind. Actually, according to the Institute of Local Self-Reliance, only about 2% of urban Americans lack access to broadband service compared to 30% of rural Americans. So as you can see, that's a pretty stark difference. And even just thinking about on our uh, turf here in the United States, that this issue between the digital economy, rural America, and also lack of access that comes from the issue of maybe having less resources or being in poverty, all of these issues intersecting to create these outcomes, um, I think are interesting and important to look at, especially when thinking about visibility, right? Because a lot of folks tend to live or might identify as living in an urban area or in a city and might not even think about, you know, access to internet as, as an issue. But obviously for almost 30% of folks, right, that's, that's, a large number in our community. And that's not even just thinking on the global scale, as Valerie was mentioning in Indonesia and thinking about the digital economy as it relates to the entire globe, where there's even less and less and less access, the more we scope out and the more we think um, on a broader scale. So thinking about that, I know, Grace, you focused too on 
um, educational tools for refugees. So again, thinking about how a lot of these issues intersect, can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote in terms of you know, the educational tools and lack of access specifically for refugees in that community? Yes, absolutely, Shireen. Thank you for the question. I do think that it's really important to understand the intersections across uh, the urban and rural divide, across the, you know, the, the U.S. In, in a Western context and in non-Western contexts in the global South, um, as well as, you know, so many intersections across, like, you know, levels of poverty and socioeconomic status across race. And especially, I think this is pronounced for some of the most vulnerable populations when we think about refugees. So as, you know, as, as you mentioned with access to the internet in rural America, as Valerie mentioned with the, the need for smartphones as a way to bridge the gap that's happening when it comes to access to, to education and, and to opportunities to work safely from home, refugees are experiencing that just to the same degree. I wrote an article for Novel Hand a few months ago about this educational crisis that refugees are facing. And only about half of refugees regularly attend primary school, which is a really, um, you know, concerning number, which I imagine has declined even further now that we've moved into almost the second year of the pandemic. So, you know, kind of thinking about the solutions that that these Jakartan journalists have, have uh, implemented in Indonesia, it's also important to think about solutions that can be particularly tailored to refugee communities that are often um, in unstable conditions, not necessarily with you know, permanent housing or even an idea of where they permanently will be located. So instead, the solutions have to be a little bit more adaptive for the refugee context. And in particular, one solution that's come from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees is this idea of doing mobile schools. And so one of these such schools is Aulamoville, which is, it's, it's like a mobile classroom that, that's located in La Paz, Bolivia right now. And it gives an opportunity for Venezuelan migrants and refugees who are often, you know, young children who've experienced very traumatic um, moving experiences while coming to Bolivia to have the opportunity to receive a formal education and to have access to remote learning as well as to technologies like smartphones and um, communication tools like Zoom. And I think going back to something that you said, Shireen, about the the need for these communication tools in order to bridge kind of the social connections that have been lost because of COVID-19, another, I think, benefit of this uh, mobile classroom program is that the UNHCR is working to even provide so- psychosocial services that are undoubtedly a necessary tool and resource in order to ensure that these young students, these young uh, refugees are, are able to be well adjusted and able to adapt to the undoubtedly difficult structural conditions that they face as refugees and especially as refugees um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So to kind of shift tone for, away from this like broad umbrella of, of internet access that, that we've all talked about um, with these three examples, I think another area within the digital economy that we have to consider, you know, the ramifications of intersectional identities and um, social justice concerns that, that uh, need to be addressed 
is this idea that labor has transformed dramatically within the digital economy. And so that comes in a few different ways, including changes in protections for workers, changes in the expectations of workers and challenges for for um, workers that that are now um, primarily employed through through means on the digital economy. So I was wondering, Valerie, if you would mind speaking a little bit to this kind of gendered effect, um, specifically in the context of the digital economy and women's labor in Japan. Yeah, I can do that. So in Japan, around the 1990s, um, the digital economy is just starting to emerge. And this gives a lot of hope and opportunity for women who has long been uh, marginalized in the marketplace because they traditionally have been um, excluded from salaried employment. So with the promise of, you know, building a potentially meaningful career in the internet, it sounds very appealing. And for people who have been marginalized in in traditional um, sectors of industry, the digital um, place is easier for um, for like women to navigate since they're used to that um, kind of environment. And so just for a little bit of context, um, the digital uh, working environment, unlike most traditional nine to five jobs, require um, people to work regular long hours with uh, no reliable income and in order to succeed in this um, in this digital world in this digital economy, women have to work really long hours and they have to work long hours and also irregularly and they also have to attend to the needs of the emotional needs of the uh, of their fans and this and for context the the jobs that in Japan that women usually take are um, called net idols so they're internet idols um, like internet celebrities and they and their main job is to um, provide healing and comforting and attending to the needs of fans and and this this type of work that they're doing is can be called as unpaid effective labor, which um, requires women to fulfill emotional um, needs uh, of people for a job without getting paid for it. And this type of work is typical when women are working as housewives. And even though this the digital um, economy promises women that you know this could be a career that could be meaningful and could be a platform for self-actualization. This became just an extension of women's role as homemakers. And what was astonishing for me to learn was that uh, with the rise of the digital economy and with a lot of uh, female um, uh, women in Japan seeking career as night idols or photographers or bloggers in the internet, they're not making a lot of money and like not a lot of them um, ends up getting a lucrative job out of the time and 
the emotional energy that they spend into this. Meanwhile, the like a lot of male internet entrepreneurs um, that creates uh, the blogging platforms for um, these uh, female net, net idols and ranking websites and uh, net idol academy. They they were very successful in establishing a lucrative career through this digital economy, and this just shows the disparities of and the result that it gives to like men and women. While men is becoming successful, women's labor becomes invisible, and a lot of women became trapped in unstable working conditions. And unfortunately, this situation is not unique to Japan. This is not um, just a Japanese um, phenomenon. But other research shows that this problem occurs in other parts of the world, including Australia. And... According to the Organization for Economic Co- Cooperation and Development, um, the digital gender divide affects both developing and developed countries. But this affects uh, developing countries uh, more. So in this case, it's just difficult to ignore the issue of gender inequity when we want to talk about the digital economy. So in thinking about this intersection a little bit more, I know that Grace was thinking about, you know, changing labor practices in the digital economy. So Grace, do you mind, you know, giving us a bit of information about that and and kind of what you found in terms of this specific intersection as well? Yeah, thank you, Shireen, for for your question. And thank you for both speaking about um, some of these like really big picture questions that, that are really important to consider when we think about the digital economy and especially this theme of social justice in the digital economy. Um, I think that we have to consider minimum wage. We have to consider the decriminalization of sex work. We have to consider uh, gender inequity across um, labor. And uh, another thing that I was considering um, is the way that the digital economy has in many ways brought to light like issues with, with labor protection and with protections for workers that are in unique in some ways and continuations of the, the labor crises in the traditional economy as well. And so to talk a little bit about that, I think it's important to examine the concepts of the gig economy and also just the, the progression of mass consumption in uh, not only Western developed states, but also throughout the developing world, and especially the really, um, you know, negative consequences for states in the global south, especially for workers, but also in terms of how this leads to destabilization of governments, how it leads to uh, the destruction and devastation of the environment. Um, And so all of these issues are are extremely interconnected and intersectional. But to return kind of to my point, um, I think that the gig economy is a really interesting perspective to take when, when we look at this. So the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics defines a gig worker, so someone who works in the gig economy, as someone who works irregularly on gigs. And so gigs can look like a number of different things. It might be someone who's the delivery driver for your, you know, takeout order on Uber Eats, or it might be someone who is um, getting you your groceries from Instacart. A gig worker could also be someone that, you know, takes online surveys or is participating in these other really irregular forms of labor that 
don't come with the traditional protections of a, of a nine to five or, or a full-time job. These contracts can take a few weeks or they might take a few minutes. And, and because of that, there's so much instability associated with it. I will say that most gig workers are working multiple gigs at a time, or they might be individuals who have full-time or part-time jobs and are additionally picking up extra hours working for, for often these app-based com- companies that are, that are particularly um, ingrained in the digital economy. But there are additionally um, other ways that, that we can see gig workers participating in, in the, the you know, traditional market economy as well that aren't just these, these digital companies. I think that it's important to recognize that you know, in 2005, gig workers were only 2 to 4% of laborers in the U.S., but now this number has spiked to 35%. And this is true not only in the U.S., but like throughout the world that, you know, the, the instability of labor is continuing to, to grow as well as, you know, the lack of, of protections. Like gig workers aren't going to receive um, health insurance or retirement savings accounts from their employers, and, except in a very limited and superficial sort of way. And in addition to that, they are facing particularly high health risks during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is another thing that, that should be addressed in, in more equitable labor practices. Um, the digital economy makes it so much easier for people to consume products and, and to consume services, which kind of facilitates the growth of these gig-based companies, as well as the demand for for corporations like Amazon and Walmart, which can provide you know instant gratification with super fast delivery of their products that tend to be lower cost than than products from companies that that are engaging in more equitable and fair labor practices and and have much more equitable supply chains. Additionally, like while Amazon and Walmart might have more stable employment opportunities, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are are giving workers these labor protection gains. And if you look at, you know, the immense wealth gain that people like Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos have experienced during the COVID-19 19 pandemic, this is not translated to to an increase in the welfare of the employees of their of their corporations. And instead, we see that, you know, these economic gains are concentrated in the hands of of the upper management and leadership um, rather than in the hands of laborers. And these laborers additionally are, you know, at some of the highest risks for for facing, you know, health problems with with the pandemic. The two jobs that that are most likely to to face a a high risk of mortality from the COVID-19 pandemic are cooks and factory workers. And that's unsurprising because these are, are, you know, positions that, that don't tend to have lots of labor protection. And I think that it's really essential to think about how the digital economy has facilitated, in some ways, a, a transformation that allows us to have greater access to products and services that, that benefit our lives. But it comes at a, at a huge human cost unless we are able to strengthen labor protections and focus more um, directly on the rights of workers in the digital economy um, and, and to really codify that and make that something that is important, not only in some of the most developed countries, but like all throughout the world. And so that's kind of my, my take on, on how social justice in the digital economy is immensely tied to worker protections and workers' rights. But to kind of, you know, 
draw a, a close on on that note, I would love if Shireen, you you wrote some really great reflection questions. Would you mind sharing a couple of those so that we can conclude the podcast and also give a little bit of a of a note to reflect on and and also encourage people to to live their days like thinking about these issues in in a more um, in-depth sort of way. Absolutely not. Thank you, Grace. I don't mind at all. And I really appreciate, you know, your explanation too of, you know, the intersection of labor specifically as it relates to worker exploitation and mass consumption and thinking about the gig economy. I didn't even really know about um, these specific issues and and even thinking about those specific roles within um, the economy is, is something that I'm going to work on and think about um, in the coming weeks. So I want to invite everyone else. If you know me, you know that I love, love, love reflecting and you know that I love thinking about self-work and how we can continue to do that self-work as it relates to advocacy and social justice. So with that being said, I wrote a couple of questions. There, there are a few. You can find a few more too um, once you read the article, which we hope you will. But a couple of these questions are as follows. What issues are visible in your community? And are there ways that these issues connected to broader social justice concerns in your state, country, or world intersect? Another great question, you know, to think about, to ask yourself, to even write down if, you know, you are able to, is how can the identity of individuals facing an issue make the issue more or less visible to a broader audience? And so while these are just a couple of the questions we have available, there again, a few more if you look um, to the link in the article, there are some great questions to start thinking about and wrapping our minds around this idea of the digital economy and how you know it begins to intersect with other issues such as labor or refugees or sex work, a lot of the different topics that we touched upon on this article. So we really invite you and encourage you to take the time to write those questions down, to think about them, and just like Grace said, continue reflecting because that really is truly a part of the self-work that is necessary for continued advocacy and activism when it comes to social justice. that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is Handful, a production of Novel Hand, where activism meets impact. Please make sure to read our article on novelhand.com.